Well, good morning, everybody, and happy 1st of December, if you're listening live. Uh, my first December show, so welcome. If you're someone who had an Advent calendar to open this morning, I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, if you didn't, here's your very first kind of Advent surprise. You've got me here on Teachers Talk Radio here for the next hour. We've got a brilliant guest joining us shortly. And if you are listening back, I hope December is going well for you or whatever month you're listening. Um, I almost can't believe it's December. And I'm also amazed to tell you that while I was on my way to the Teachers Talk Radio studio this morning, it was snowing, which was very, very cool. Um, because I wasn't sure if we would have snow or not. It has, I'm looking out the window, it has actually stopped now. So um, panic off, the roads should be fine for the rest of the day, hopefully. But it did feel very Christmassy and magical to see some sprinkles of snow coming down this morning. If any of you are already connected with me on social media, you might have seen that I was letting my chickens out this morning and they were not very impressed at all as I opened their coop uh, to come out into the garden. They were very hesitant, um, but luckily with some some corn, they have poultry gold, which they love because it has uh, chicken pellets and corn, which is very good to keep them extra toasty in this cold weather. Um, but let's not get sidetracked talking too much about chickens because we are here today to welcome a very special guest. I'm going to be talking about subjects such as teacher autonomy, uh, sustainability, and generally about how we prepare students for their futures in our society uh, and what that society may even be like. So welcome everyone that is listening in. Welcome, I can see superfan David is here listening in and he's just sent me a virtual coffee. Hopefully there's a nice um, gingerbread syrup or something in there, David, to keep it seasonal. And also very excited to say our guest is also just arriving in our studio as well. Um, our guest you may know is Dr. Morgan Phillips and when um, Morgan and I were talking about the topic for today's show, we settled on the title, Why Aren't We Giving Teachers and Learners More Freedom? So I'm sure um, as we go through, Dr. Morgan will tell us more about his passion for this topic. But as he is here, good morning, Dr. Morgan. Morning, Poppy. Hope you can hear me okay. Yes, I can. I can. How are you? Have you had snow this morning? We've had a hard, a hard frost, but no snow yet. We're down by the sea, so. It's okay. Oh, wow. Well, hard frost. So you're, you're on stage one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Too cold for snow. A lot of people told me yesterday when it was frosty. <laughs> I love how everyone's a weather expert when <laughs> it's snow season. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But welcome. And it's, it's great to have you here. And um, I hope it's okay. I've got a whole list of questions for you for the next hour. <laughs> great. Thank Gonna you. Yeah, it's great to be here. Grill your expertise. Now, we're so delighted that you could come and join us. Um, and maybe before we dive in with some of these questions, and they're, they're quite heavy ones for Friday, I'm not going to yeah. lie. <laughs> We've got okay. some big topics for Friday, uh, you know, sustainability, teacher autonomy, and preparing for the future. But um, let's begin. Let, let's learn a bit about you, please. Maybe you can tell us. Um, a bit of a, a kind of a background to you, your educational journey leading up to your current role, if that's okay. Yeah, thanks, Poppy. I won't, I won't, I won't go on for too long. Um, so I, yeah, grew up in in West Wales, um, which is where I live again now. Um, went to Newquay Primary School, um, Aberdeen Comprehensive School. Went on to do a geography degree at Leicester University, and then a master's in environmental science policy and planning at Bath University and a PhD in environmental education then at, at University of Gloucestershire. So um, it took me a while to get into the real world. And then um, after, <laughs> after that, um, I've basically been working for an, a number of different environmental and um, sort of development charities um, of varying sizes. So um, mm -hmm. Global Footsteps, the Glacier Trust, Keep Britain Tidy. And currently now I work for Global Action Plan where I um, head up um, our Generation Action Work, which is the title we give to our kind of education and youth engagement work. So um, that's where I'm now and I've got a fantastic team and we do a whole load of different projects and programs, which um, people can obviously look up. But um, yeah, that's where I'm at now. And yeah, I'm really interested in not just sort of how we do environmental education kind of within the existing system, but actually thinking about how the existing system maybe needs to shift a little bit so that we can um, have more opportunities to do sustainability education and, and do it well to, mm -hmm. um, so hopefully, yeah, create a, a green and thriving planet, which is kind of Global Action Plan's sort of scrapline. 
Excellent. Wow. And I love the way you just made that seem so effortless as well, Morgan, just like, you know, degree, uh, <laughs> PhD, and now just saving the world. So. <laughs> wow. I'm very, yeah, I'm very, very privileged to have had the opportunities I've had and sort of grateful for them. And um, yeah, and, and it's something actually we always have to kind of keep in mind, I think, is, um, you know, it's, um, it, it, it we can make it sound effortless, but, you know, we're, we're, I'm lucky, you know, to have been born where I've been born in the circumstance I've been under. A lot of people don't have those opportunities. So, um, mm -hmm. yeah, don't, I never try, try to never lose sight of that. Wonderful. I love that. Very humble of you. And so I guess, are you are you following the, um, we've obviously got COP28 going on at the moment, mm -hmm. um, Conference of the Parties, for anyone listening who, who wasn't sure what the COP stood for. Is that is that something you kind of follow, um, kind of what's going on with COP28? Is that relevant to your work? Yeah, it's definitely relevant. We just, um, and we're really interested in kind of how we can get youth voices and youth perspectives sort of into those conversations, which is starting to happen a bit more now, but obviously not as much as we'd like. Um, there was some good sort of agreements yesterday about the um, about the commitment to have a, a fund for loss and damages, which has been called for for decades. And I used to do a lot of work in, in Nepal with Nepalese farmers in the mountains there, and they so badly need the support to to adapt and to kind of recover from the the kind of the impacts they're having so it's great to see that happen and yeah we keep an eye on it for sure i think we are um i think across the environmental sector we've, we have a love-hate relationship with with the cop process and some parts mm -hmm. of it are great and some parts of it are really really make you despair so um, yeah definitely mm -hmm. keep an eye on it yeah i can imagine yeah i mean it's it's amazing isn't it like very much what you're saying as well like it all depends where you're born and where you live um mm -hmm. i recently was doing a module with my students for our um key paradigms and we were looking at extreme poverty in the world slightly off topic but we were looking at extreme poverty mm. and I was trying to explain to my students you know in in those areas of extreme poverty we were looking at um, a wheel that showed you know the, the most poor countries in the world and you can't yeah. you can't really get your head around it and I was and we were talking you know like a, a fictional case study there's someone do they send their children to school or do they keep them home to learn how to work on the farm and you know some of us yeah. can't even imagine our children not just going straight into the education system and my students were you know, like, we were like, how do we even begin to answer that? And luckily, you know, for many of us, we won't have to ask those questions. Our children can just, you know, skip off to school for many of us. Um, yeah, yeah re really so geographically diverse, isn't it, our planet? Oh, it's amazing. And yeah, the levels of inequality kind of within countries, I mean, it's even within the UK, it's pretty extreme mm -hmm. inequalities, but between countries, even more so. Um, yeah. And like i say i was lucky enough to work in nepal and, and yeah and those case studies those fictional ones they're, they're real ones i've had the conversations with people about mm -hmm. should we keep our you know how many hours a day can i afford to let my child go to school you know those are conversations wow. i've had with people and um, yeah it just shows but you know they're also learning when they're on the farm as well so it's not like they're not learning it's exactly so, exactly learning learning those different, different skills exactly yeah. learning in different ways and yeah i know i've got a question to ask you later about <laughs> how we prepare people for their futures mm. but um yeah, really interesting, isn't it, how we do become, I think, institutionalised. This is what education should look like. And actually, particularly with artificial intelligence, which I'm sure we'll touch on later as well, you know, s swimming into our classrooms, actually, what will our society look like? And I know Elon Musk said there'll be no jobs in 20 years or whatever. <laughs> so, you know, actually, do we need to shift the way we educate our young people and what might that look like? So I'll be I'll be interested in what you think on that later, Morgan. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, one other thing actually i wanted to ask you it wasn't on my list of questions but i don't know if you saw this um i saw it on social media last night um i can't remember which town it was in but you know one of those um kind of sensational trying to grab the media's attention there was a food bank tree Have you seen it no i've not seen this so i can't remember where it was somewhere in the uk um built a food bank tree um and it's a i think it's a 24 foot tree made of food bank items and you know with a post like that is it was a news article yeah. line you've got to go for the comments <laughs> straight to the comments. and like yeah. everyone just saying i'm sure people would prefer if, if those food items were on their shelves or i'm sure you know those items would be better in a food bank so i i just wondered if you'd seen it but something for you to look up after the show morgan oh, well. yeah 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 <laughs> interesting interesting but yeah christmas we know is, it is a tough time for for many of us so yeah really interesting what we can do but anyway that's that's for show two we'll get you back in the future to talk more about <laughs> Um, so let's dive in then, because I know when when we were setting the topic for the show, um, you were telling me about your interest in the freedom of teachers. And I wasn't really I was kind of surprised that was something you wanted to talk about. So my first question is, why 
is an environmental charity interested in the freedom of teachers and learners? Yeah, it's um, yeah, I guess it's it's an opportunity to actually we you know thinking more broadly about what the education system needs to look like for sustainability, and that's kind of one of the questions which is or kind of one of the solutions potentially I think that that we could be looking at is the freedom of teachers, and it probably it's probably quite a nuanced sort of argument discussion about why why we think that is and why we are interested in it, which I'm sure we'll get into, and I won't I won't blast it all out now in one one big splurge, but. Really, firstly, on a human level, I mean, putting all the environmental issues to one side, you know, the education system, we have a lot of interaction with teachers and, and with learners um, through our work. You know, they're, they're, being, they're being starved of autonomy at the moment. And so on a really human level, we just, we just really feel for them because, that we, because they've got, haven't got all that freedom that, that they should have over how to teach and how to, how to learn. And they, they don't have, you know, they have even less sort of freedom over what topics they, they can engage with when they're in the classroom in the formal education system. And that, you know, is is really can be really demotivating and demoralizing and patronizing. And teachers are feeling undervalued. So on a human level, we're interested in it. And then on a kind of as an environmental charity, like the climate and nature crisis, we've discussed a bit already. I mean, it's 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 pretty wild. I mean, it's I don't think people quite appreciate how how advanced some of the environmental crises we're seeing are are at the moment. So we look at air pollution a lot in, in our work and. There's, there's a piece of research called the Air Quality Life Index, and that, that shows that 98% of people in the world live in areas where the air pollution levels exceed what is, deter what, what is a safe level, as, as the WHO calls it. So that means that billions and billions of people, they're losing years off their lives, and not just a little bit. This is, we're wow. talking sort of two, you say two years. 98%? Yeah, 98% of people, yeah, live in areas where... 98% of people are living in in what's seen as a dangerous air pollution. Yeah, well, above above safe levels, definitely. So this is so it's not just wow. a kind of. I mean, I'm sure if anybody's you know travelled to kind of global south capital cities, they, they they you can really experience the air pollution. But it's it's a big issue in London. It's a big issue in Birmingham, across all the all the big cities in the UK. And uh, am I safe in Essex? Um, probably not. <laughs> it's there's depending <laughs> where you are in, in Essex if you're in a town or city. Um there's wow. there's a there's a good chance that air pollution levels there, you know, from cars, from log burners, from ammonia from, from agriculture and so on, all of these things are contributing to air pollution. And yeah, and it and it's you know potentially two or three years um off your life as, as a result of, wow. of that. So there's, there's there's that that's just one example. And there's loads of examples. I saw a story the other day about um the North American wolverines, which is, you know, they're an amazing little creature and really tenacious, but they need snow to dig dens so they can give birth to their offspring. Mm -hmm. And, you know, because of climate change, their homes are literally melting away in the snow mountains oh, in the God. US. And so, you know, that that's something that's happened. And finally, now there's been some protections put in place for some of their habitats, but, you know, it's, there's, and, you know, that's just one animal. There's loads of animals that are affected in, in similar ways. And, and I guess if anybody's been following the news over the, over the last year or kind of the sort of stories about temperature increases, you know, this has been one of the hottest, well, probably the hottest year on record. And there's been 38 days this year that have been above 1.5 degrees above the pre-industrial average. So, you know, this is the target, 1.5 degrees that we want to try and keep temperature increases below. But there's been 38 days this year that have gone above it. There's actually a few days last, I think last month or maybe a couple of weeks ago, that were above two degrees. And so we're, we're already sort of going past those those kind of upper limits of, of what is deemed to be safe. And we know is 1.5 isn't safe and two degrees certainly isn't safe. And so we're getting more and more um, heat waves, flooding, hurricanes, storms. And they have this, that's a kind of fast violence that kind of visits people's lives and causes huge amounts of damage and disruption. But we're also mm -hmm. getting the slow violence as well. Of, you know, as temperatures creep up, it means that farmers you know who used to be able to grow a crop at a certain sort of latitude or a certain altitude are now having to try and shift you know maybe up the hill to be able to grow that crop if they can if that land's available if the hill's tall enough and mm -hmm. you've got things like wine growers kind of ripping out their their vines because those varieties of grapes that you know maybe did grow in bordeaux quite well now can't grow because it's getting too hot and they're, they're not able to cope with the, the intensity of the summer heat and so they're having to introduce, you know, grapes which have previously grown in sort of south of Portugal or south of Spain. And so there's there's all this going on all mm -hmm. the time. And and like, and this is this is only a, 
sort of at the moment we're about 1.2 degrees of warming on average but obviously it's going up and up and you know we could be talking three four degrees of warming within the century which yeah the impacts are huge so as a as an environmental charity we're there therefore you know with all of this going on we're looking for as you know as as environmentalists i guess and we're all kind of environmentalists some way hopefully um we need to find as many levers as possible to pull mm-hmm. to try and create the social and the cultural and the economic changes actually yeah. they're, they're, they're more like transformations that need to happen mm-hmm. to be able to slow the climate change and nature loss down to adapt to it and so on and education is one of those levers so this is this is you know why we're interested in education and why yeah. environmentalists are interested in it um and have been for, for for a long time but what we need to be doing is to be really smart about how we pull that education lever and what yeah. direction do we pull it in how hard do we pull it how much of a shift in the education system is is needed mm-hmm. and yeah for us i think giving teachers and learners more freedom is is one of one of the things we want to do when we're kind of pulling on that education lever wow thank you so much for explaining all of that i mean and i i totally agree with you it's it's also about thinking what is you know we don't like change in education do we so i totally agree with you it's, it's going to be about thinking what you know yeah the size of the lever when we pull the lever but can, can i heckle and you know my listeners will know we like to make it a little bit spicy on teachers talk radio what <laughs> yeah. then because i i love social media and i you know i post a lot but i also read a lot and i have seen people a small corner of people saying climate change isn't a thing and actually when they look at history that we had these heat waves and you know droughts and things in a cycle you know 100 years ago I don't know the exact numbers mm-hmm. like what what's your response to that is that something people bring to you um to be honest no we don't I don't ever really come across that directly I mean obviously yeah, on social media you get the the kind of the trolls and you're not sure whether they're real people or not anyway <laughs> these days especially mm-hmm. on on Twitter slash X or whatever you want to call it. Um, I think that sort of contrarian thinking is hopefully dying off. I think it's really hard for anybody with a straight face to say that they think that, you know, human caused climate change isn't happening. I think it's becoming an increasingly fringe view. And I think Mm -hmm. it's actually one of those things where it's better not to talk about it at all and engage with it because it just reinforces that frame and it kind of creates this idea that there is a debate here and there isn't really a debate here so mm-hmm. tend not to engage them to be honest yeah I mean and I'm on your side just to stress I'm not one of those no, I'm sure you and, are um, I'm sure you are <laughs> D- David said in the chat um, these may also be people that believe the earth is flat yeah <laughs> so uh, yeah no exactly right we'll, we'll always see you know two sides to an argument but no I was just interested if that you know if that was something that you and it's good to hear that that that's dying out but I mean equally poor that that means there is an issue we need to respond to and and I think what why I'm so interested to have you on today because without our planet we will not exist. So why is this not the core of our curriculum? You know, rather than just having those, I've seen like, you know, walk to school, um, like pushes and things like that. When I was a primary teacher, we used to have a chart with all the children's name and their tick if they walk to school, you know, try and, you know, be more friendly for the environment and recycle pushes at school. But but generally, why is caring for our planet kind of not higher up on the the curriculum? Why is geography, for example, such a marginalised subject so I guess my at least quite nicely into my next question for you Morgan then mm. how should the education system be responding to this climate and nature crisis yeah and this is the kind of the question we wrestle with a lot and well, I guess I'll, I should really just talk about the education system in England here rather than kind of UK wide because it is obviously different in mm-hmm. Wales and Scotland and so on who who arguably a bit doing a bit better on this but in England um you know, how should it be responding? I think, you know, a lot better than it is right now. I think the right now, like you say, it's marginalized and there's not a lot of it happening. Um, so yeah, for me, it's, it's woefully inadequate. Like climate change really in schools is being treated like a minor threat. I have, um, I have two nephews and a niece and sort of a corner, they, they came to visit and over the summer and I sort of, sort of sat them down and one at a time saying, what do you know about climate change? And, I, and we're talking sort of, a 12 year old a 15 year old and a 17 year old mm-hmm. and none of them knew much about it at all so you know their wow. school isn't you know it's, it's something they've they've they hear they have maybe one or two lessons about during their school almost through the whole whole of their school life um 
so they're kind of aware of it but it's definitely it's like a drop in the ocean really like it's just being thrown in it's just one of very many things in the, in the noise that they that they hear so it's so it's just not coming through and that's not true in all schools you know some schools are really doing good stuff on it and you know really committed and passionate teachers mm-hmm. and students they're finding a way to actually bring sustainability and climate issues into their teaching and learning and they're doing stuff kind of mm-hmm. outside of the curriculum or they're kind of using the great you know there's great resources out there to help teachers to weave these issues into across the curriculum there's there's plenty of stuff out there and like part of what we do as a charity is to try and share that stuff and promote it and get it out there to teachers um so it's not you know it's not responding well but i don't think it ends there really because and i think this touches on what you just said before like it's actually it's not just what the education system is failing to do that's problematic what it is what it does do is problematic too and arguably more so so the the education system in england currently kind of activates and reinforces a whole set of values and beliefs and worldviews that underpin and kind of shore up today's hyper consumerist and unsustainable society which is obviously highly problematic from an environmental perspective so if you think about what the purpose of education currently is it's is towards perpetuating the current economic system the current social and cultural norms and continue to push those and those things are driving you know huge overconsumption of resources um goods and services which are you know causing all of the environmental issues that, that we're facing so it's it's kind of because education system is part of that kind of process of, of perpetuating a hyper consumer society it's not mm-hmm. just what it's not doing which is a problem it's what it is doing as a problem as well and um and that means you know when we're kind of as environmentalists then i think not just environmentalists because these these are huge social justice issues as well um you know we need to not just be talking about how we can kind of make tweaks to the curriculum or introduce a bit more climate change into a few more subjects here and there we need to be a, a lot bolder in our campaign asks and, and think more more holistically about the education system and and how it how it can potentially transform the world and um, because that's yeah. you know it needs it needs to play a role in, in doing that and that means you know it might just have to be you know revolutionizing like you say we don't like change and i think it's yeah i think well some people do like change i think but the um and thrive on it but there's there's a kind of there's a need for it to be a slow revolution rather than a fast one i don't think fast revolutions work well in education at all no, you try and I rush think... it in it doesn't work i have a my, my dad's a retired teacher and yeah we have a lot of these conversations and he's and he always moans about you know kind of flip-flopping in terms of policy direction that he experienced mm-hmm. through his career and how frustrating mm-hmm. it was but yeah you need slower revolutions which take you know a decade or so to, to bed in properly yes. rather than try and rush it in but um even but in the, in the planetary history a decade is is a drop in the ocean so we have to kind of think about yeah, yeah. About those terms i totally agree yeah it's, it's about drip feeding and those kind of daily manageable habits as well isn't it and that's why it's, it's so surprising you know to hear you talking to those members of your family who are you know young young people teenagers that are not aware of these issues we're kind of doing our children a disservice aren't we and like you say we're generalizing because some schools are, are doing excellent work yeah. um, in this field but um I've, I've got a question for you uh, let's throw in a quiz question <laughs> yeah okay uh, linked to you've inspired me what you're saying about consumerism because i do I do think this is, you know, part of the problem. We've made life so easy for ourselves and we choose not to think about how that ease is happening. So how many boxes do you think Amazon, uh, other uh, shipping is available through other websites, but how many boxes do you think they use a day? Cardboard boxes. Oh, globally. Mm-hmm. Oh. I mean, they don't divulge their results, but we've got an estimate that I found online. I'm going to go for... Three billion. <laughs> okay, well, okay, it's not quite that much. <laughs> but um, I swear, again, it could be, it could be three billion. But the number that we've got is um, an estimated one one million six hundred thousand packages a day. Wow, that is a but lot. But I mean, that's a lot of boxes. I mean, I have, I have, that, that, I have about a million in my house. <laughs> and that's just one company, hey. And that's just one company. Yeah, yeah maybe. I mean. My, I'm showing up my lack of numeracy skills. 
<laughs> it's not it's not my strong area either I was um looking recently at what what a million pounds would actually look like what a billion pounds would look like and yeah mm. I was looking at number blocks with my four-year-old there's lots of amazing videos online of uh, yeah what a million and a billion look like but yeah just the things like this that we're using to make our lives easier but forgetting that behind them is going to be that consequence so um this leads quite nicely into my next question. Uh, mm. not, not, no numbers involved. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> um, we'll, do, we'll do one more question, then, then we'll jump for our news break. But I wondered then, do we need to redefine, and I think we've kind of touched on probably yes, do we need to redefine the purpose of the education system? Um, well, yeah, I think so. I mean, and it's, it's a broader kind of question, isn't it, about the purpose of what we're trying to do as a society full stop isn't it and the education system is part of that so and i think for me i'm i mean i'm reasonably clear on what i think the purpose should be and i actually think there's kind of two purposes and they kind of overlap each other so for me okay. education sort of first and foremost should be about enabling young people to think for themselves and you know and then the second thing is that given where we are with the climate crisis inequality injustices ecological breakdown we're seeing we also need really the education system to be preparing young people for a future that is deeply uncertain so we don't we don't really know what's coming so we could be living in a world where it's 1.5 degrees warmer um, than the average or even probably one degree warmer than now or four degrees warmer than now and those worlds are going to be very very different like a four degrees warm world is going to be vastly different to a one degree warmed world and we don't really know what's where we're headed with that. And so that creates a whole lot of uncertainty about the future. Um, we, you know, the, the idea that today's kind of semi-stable conditions, I mean, it's less stable. The world feels less stable right now than it did when I was in school. But um, the idea that stability is going to continue, that we can kind of have a good estimate of what the world will look like in, in a decade's time or two decades time, I think is, is, you know we don't really know do we and it's it's not mm -hmm. going to be we don't really have this stable thing and, and like you said at the top like things like ai we don't know how that's going to play out yet and we also don't know what other things are going to be invented in the next decade which which could have impacts so there's a, quite a lot of uncertainty so the, so really the purpose of education for me should be really thinking about how we prepare young people for uncertainty but also how we can enable them to think for themselves rather than kind of being told what to think mm -hmm. and how to mm -hmm. think so um those are for me should be the kind of the two purposes and I guess we can get a bit more into that um in yeah I know I really I really like that and I agree you know those those are really the two things education should do <laughs> but often as I argue with my my students who you know training teachers um maybe we're not always doing that we are too stuck in this academic cycle you know of assessments and 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 numbers and actually I really like that that kind of authenticity of what you're saying that it should just be about preparing them preparing for uncertainty but don't think that's the problem we don't like uncertainty <laughs> we don't like sad scary things no but it's, it's it's uncertainty could you know it can also be a hopeful thing because you know a lot of people feel like the world isn't very good right now and mm -hmm. it's and and they're being beaten up by it i mean for the majority of people it isn't great right now when you, when you look at it yes, yeah and so you know part of the uncertainty is that it could get better and you know young people can can help to shape it to become better and that's that's a more positive thing because some people don't want it to stay like it is now because mm -hmm, like it mm -hmm. is now isn't great for them great okay i i like that on that hopeful note <laughs> let's jump to the news uh, morgan don't go away we'll be back everyone in about 8 minutes time and maybe we'll start to think about then morgan how we can prepare young people for this this uncertain world Great. Thanks, Poppy. Thank you so much so far and be back with you all soon. Don't go away. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out the latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. In today's educational environment, students and teachers are juggling a mix of face-to-face, -face, online and blended learning courses. Canvas by Instructure 
helps teachers navigate these diverse learning experiences with a user-friendly virtual learning environment that offers flexible access to courses and a consistent learning experience, all while streamlining everyday teaching processes. The world's best schools and universities are using Canvas to create dynamic courses, collaborate seamlessly, and access actionable data that drives student success. On the 24th to the 26th of January, 2024, Bet UK is back and even better for educators. New for 2024, Table Talks empowers educators to collaborate openly and connect deeply with like-minded individuals in the education space, as well as tech user labs, the brilliant new tutorials and working groups at BET, where technology users will learn how to get more out of their institution's tech from the top education technology experts in the world. Whatever your goal, you'll find it at BET 2024. Educators go free. Get your tickets today at www.uk.betshow.com forward slash visitor dash registration. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. School summer holidays are often a hot topic, but they made the news again in The Guardian as leaders in Wales appear to be considering changes. According to reports, Wales's minority Labour administration wants to shrink summer breaks from six weeks to five and eventually reduce it to four weeks. The plan would see the time added to half-term breaks in October and May. The proposal would equalise the length of terms and break the connection with Easter, by fixing the timing of the spring break regardless of when the religious festival falls. The newspaper says the plans follow research by the government which suggests that parents struggle to organise and pay for childcare over the summer. Plaid Cymru, which supports the proposal, said in a statement that the current calendar was outdated as it was designed a long time ago and that some families find the summer break very long and impacting negatively on their well-being. However, the article also points out that evidence of the harm to learning from school holidays is unclear, as much of the evidence comes from the United States, where summer holidays can be up to 12 weeks long rather than the six to seven weeks in the UK. John Hattie, Professor of Education at the University of Melbourne, said the effects from school holidays are very small and there is little reason to believe that the length of the school year has much effect at all. A study from 2019 that looked at pupils from primary schools in an area of high deprivation in Scotland and England found no effect on reading skills. In Northern Ireland, schools typically have eight weeks off in the summer, but generally have results in exams that are better than those in England or Wales. However, a 2022 study did find evidence of worsening mental health in some age groups over long summer breaks. Surveys done in Wales found 60% of parents said they were quite happy with the school year as it is. In 2013, then Education Secretary Michael Gove gave schools in England the power to choose the timing of holidays, but most schools kept the six weeks. The BBC News website reports on the Beyond Ofsted Inquiry. The inquiry is chaired by former schools minister Lord Knight and is funded by the National Education Union. The report from the inquiry recommends that schools should instead be responsible for their own improvement plans. Ofsted has responded by repeating its previous statement that inspections are needed to ensure a high quality education. The inquiry said that Ofsted was now seen by many as toxic and not fit for purpose, and in need of major reform. The removal of single word judgments was also recommended, and this echoed another report on school improvement released earlier by the Institute for Public Policy Research, which also called for narrative style judgments rather than single words. The Beyond Ofsted inquiry recommended stopping Ofsted from having direct contact with schools, and instead schools should draw up their own improvement plans which would make them accountable to parents and the wider local community. Lord Knight, speaking to the BBC, 
said Ofsted created a culture of fear in our schools. His report also said that Ofsted had become under-resourced for the high-stakes job expected of it. A spokesperson for Ofsted said 9 out of 10 schools say inspections helped them to improve. In related news, the current Chief Inspector of Schools, Amanda Spielman, has written in her final annual report about parents being increasingly willing to challenge school rules in England. She described the unwritten contract between home and school as fractured and that it will take time to repair. The report is broadly positive but draws attention to a shift in behaviour, attendance and attitudes to education since the pandemic, describing it as leaving a troublesome legacy. Full details of her comments can be found across media outlets. Teach First has celebrated its 20th anniversary with three former Prime Ministers praising the charity's work in tackling education inequalities. According to Teach First's own website newsfeed, the charity has recruited more than 16,000 teachers to work in disadvantaged areas across England. Teach First CEO Russell Horby reaffirmed the charity's mission to help Britain's most disadvantaged children to achieve their full potential. Finally, student immigration data has been released, with Home Secretary James Cleverly stating the biggest drivers of immigration to the UK are students and healthcare workers. He further commented that this was testament to our world-leading university sector. According to data, Indian nationals account for over one quarter of all sponsored study grants, followed by Chinese nationals. The education sector relies heavily on students applying to UK universities for significant funding. But there is also political pressure to reduce net immigration. Any plans to make changes to the current system will be monitored carefully. Although for now, the focus remains on illegal migration rather than legal routes. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. Well, welcome back, everyone. And I have to say a big sorry. That was my dog at the start of the uh, of the news there. Um, as I've just said, I think she's dying to be a guest on my show. But sorry for you, Nova. My guest is the amazing Dr. Morgan Phillips. Welcome back, Morgan. Thanks, Poppy. <laughs> I think your dog was talking more sense than me, to be honest. <laughs> Oh gosh, you know they do say never work, never work with animals. <laughs> <laughs> but welcome back and welcome back, listeners. And so we've got lots of new listeners that have joined as well uh, before the first half of the show. But do remember, you can listen back if you missed the first half. But really interesting show and something a bit different today, which is always nice. Uh, we're talking to Dr. Morgan about issues such as uh, sustainability, climate change, and how we can really bring this into the classroom. So. Um, I've got, I think, let me just check my list on my clipboard. Right, I've got about three questions left. We've got about 20 minutes, Morgan. Are you ready? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll do my best. Let's smash it. Okay, so um, before the break, you were laying out for us your two kind of um, kind of dreams or your two visions for education. So the next question, I want to jump right in with you. How can we prepare young people for the uncertain world that lies ahead of them? Yeah, this is... Um... There's something there's quite a lot of schools of thought around how we how we do this and it's becoming something which you know more and more people are talking about unesco OECD, and so on it's, it's a big conversation globally um and we need to kind of i think we need to rewind a little bit though just to talk about you know how education you know education has been instrumentalized for quite a long time I, like education is used as an instrument to pursue a particular political objective mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and normally what that's trying to do is trying to get pupils to kind of prescribe to a kind of predetermined mode of thinking so if you think about the agenda of those running the education system in england right now um they're quite transparent i think around it so especially with things like fundamental british values they're kind of saying these are the things which we want you to think are really important and trying to instill those values in your people and it's happening mm-hmm. in more opaque ways as well around you know values around competition status image and wealth and those are the things you're you're sort of aiming for through your education and so that's going on so when we think about changing the purpose of education, there's there's also if you think about if, if the chief execs of all of the big environmental charities suddenly were kind of to form the government and to, and one of them was to be secretary of state for education, they'd be tempted, I'm sure, to switch the purpose of education to 
sustainable development. So we'd, mm -hmm, we'd, we'd mm -hmm. have education, which was which was kind of education for sustainable development. And they'd have their own particular definition of what sustainable development is, which would be laced through with their own values and beliefs and perspectives and biases and so on. And mm -hmm. presumably they then want young people to graduate from school thinking like them. So having their definitions of what's important and their definition of sustainable development. And sustainable development is a very contested kind of term. Um, and so that what that does then is is rather than enabling young people to think for themselves it's kind of saying you should you should think like us and just to just to point out i don't i don't think this is what the environmental ngos would do and want to do i think they're more enlightened than this but that when we're thinking about sort of what education is for when we're sort of saying it's for we want to try and get young people to believe a certain thing or to think in a certain way that mm -hmm. is kind of for me it's fundamentally against the spirit of education which is you know to enable young people to think for themselves and mm -hmm. and to actually understand the world for themselves and discover it for themselves so while it's tempting to switch the purpose of education to sustainable development it's really problematic and there's a great paper on this so it's actually more of an article bob jickling 1992 um why i don't want my children to be educated for sustainable development i won't go into it all now people can look it up oh thank like you is that something to read for the weekend no, yeah, I love a sensational headline. <laughs> but it's but it's actually, you know, he is an environmentalist and actually sort of talks about why it's important. So back to that mm -hmm. question of how we prepare young people for an uncertain world. Mm -hmm. Um like I said, there's two two schools of thought of it. I mean, we, we have to start from a place where we're being honest with ourselves about the future and that we don't know what it will hold. And like I talked about before, kind of the age of stability is sort of ebbing away and it, it could it could become even more uncertain as as climate breakdown kicks in even further. So what do you do? So the two options are you either prepare young people to simply be able to adapt to whatever emerges in the future. So you develop what's called their adaptive reactivity mm -hmm. or you prepare them to be agents of change capable of working together to transform the world. And this is how this is sort of developing what's called their agentic world making. So they kind of have have agency. They believe that they have the power to change things and they kind of have you know both the desire to do it and the skills to do it so they're quite mm -hmm. they're two quite different positions so that adaptive reactivity one is a lot more passive it assumes the kind of agenda of individualism hyper consumerism is going to sort of go on and on but in a more unstable world and the education should be preparing young people to sort of cope with this so it's quite individualistic and it's quite passive mm -hmm. whereas the kind of agentic world making is a lot more active and it's a lot more sort of um but it's less individualistic a bit more collective and yeah. it acknowledges that people can and do shape the world, usually by working together, but it critically, and this goes back to the kind of thing around enabling young people to think for themselves, it doesn't tell students what the world should be, it enables them to, mm -hmm. to work that out for themselves and decide it for themselves, discover it for themselves, usually together, and then to go about set, you know, set out creating it because, the, because they have this agentic world making, they're, they're able they feel able to create change. Wow. So that's I love of, that term. That, that term yeah, it's is great. so so dreamy. I love it. <laughs> it comes world from making. Uh, yeah. I came across it via um Professor Noah Sobe, who I don't know if you've had him on here. He's he's brilliant. He's in Chicago. Um, mm -hmm. he's a sort of historian of, of education he's looking at these things. So um so yeah, so it's so that it's kind of instrumentalized to an extent because we're you know we're we're using education still as a tool to kind of nurture change makers in the future mm -hmm. but it's only mm -hmm. sort of lightly instrumentalized it's not sort of you must think in this way and and sort of follow our kind of our beliefs about what the world should be is actually saying you know we trust you if you if we set you free to learn and discover the world for yourself and to work together yeah. and feel like you can change it we trust that you will create a better world and you know a green and thriving planet so we talk about it as global action plan. we wouldn't we wouldn't ever sort of define what that is for young people it's for them to work out wow. what that is I love that yeah it just feels like you say it's, it's kind of giving the power back to them as the young person you know going forward that is yeah it sounds I mean it sounds too good to be true I mean it's something, no, yeah. is this something we can do in our current education system right let, let's go on to my next question because this links quite nicely then um yeah. So I wondered um, for you and your current work, do you kind of have a vision then of this education system that you think we should be calling for in our schools? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a draft vision, <laughs> but definitely do have one. And, okay. it's, and it's the result of kind of 
lots of conversations that I have across the sector and with young people and mm -hmm. when I say the sector I mean the education sector but also the environmental sector and yeah at, at the heart of it is is young people having more freedom and you know and it's based around a belief which is you know a long-standing one in education that you know when you give young people and adults more freedom to learn to choose what they learn and how they learn they're more mm -hmm. likely then to develop the knowledge of skills and values that they'll need to create a better world so we're asking them to be you know more like themselves not not more like me when we're, when we're doing that we're saying go out there like we want you to be who you are because who you are is probably quite a creative inquisitive cooperative compassionate person like we we have a myth in society that people are self-interested and sort of individualistic and kind of want to be like that but it's it is a myth and actually all of the research into what people actually value and how they want to live most people deep down are caring people who mm -hmm. want to cooperate they don't want like huge amounts of wealth they, they understand that wealth comes from different places and not just money and fame and status they, they understand it comes from connection and sort of learning and so on and actually that's what they're pursuing in their lives and so if, if you let people go and pursue those things they will probably go out and create that sort of world so it's, it's kind of based on actually we're seeing more and more of this as well like things like the rise of epqs and how popular they're becoming is showing how hungry young people are to choose what they learn and be able to do it and and it's also showing they can be trusted as well that they can actually you can just set them free and say go and pick a topic you want to learn about and and work towards it work towards them qualification in it and that, that's happening so so back to so the vision um trying to sort of draft this up and if we are thinking about publishing it next year as a, as a kind of provocative piece to sort of mm -hmm. talk about this and essentially it would be more democratic it would be more decentralized it would be kind of more lightly instrumentalized so mm -hmm. it wouldn't be sort of really that kind of what I was talking about before about um having a bit of a purpose but not being really dogmatic about it um there'd be a greater focus on education as end in itself sort of just it's worth doing for its own good um, and teachers and learners have more freedom about what they teach, how they teach, mm -hmm. and it would bring them closer to their humanity, effectively, and, and develop that agentic world making. So we've got to be pragmatic and try and deal in the art of what's possible. And so yeah. the kind of framework which I'm kind of putting out there, I think it's the first time I've talked about it outside of our organisation. Wow, thank you. It goes um, <laughs> it's a basically a three-thirds curriculum is what we're talking about. So we have a, have a national curriculum, a local curriculum, and a personal curriculum. And within mm -hmm. that system, teachers would have agency over how teaching is done, ped pedagogic um, autonomy, which is, you know, obviously strong in, other, in some countries like Finland, for example, where it's really strong, teachers get to, they get told what to teach, but they, they get more freedom over how to teach it. But they'd also get some more, some more autonomy over what is taught. So in, so we'd have, a third of your school day or your school week would be decided at the national level. And personally, I'd love that to be through a sort of a national citizens assembly about where people come together to decide what is it that young people need to know, what do they need to know how to do and make sure they're getting the basics, which will probably you know, result in numeracy and literacy, core science things and so on. They, those core mm -hmm. things will be covered there. And then you'd have a local curriculum, which is, which again could be created through um, a deliberative democracy process through a citizens assembly where maybe you'd bring together people in the sort of the size of a of a constituent like a political constituency or a county or local authority and you'd have business people public sector people people from charities um parents young people all kind of deliberating on what else should children learn on top of the national stuff and there you'd get you know more sort of the local history more things which are relevant to the local area I live in a seaside town, you know, things which are tourism and learning about how that works mm -hmm. would, would probably crop up. And then you have a, the, the final third will be a personal curriculum, which is where the teachers and the young people are able to come up with their own ideas of what they want to learn. So maybe they'd spend every afternoon working on a project, either individually or in a team, um, doing some project-based learning around a topic of their choice just following their nose following their interests and through doing that they're obviously developing that sense of agency and their ability to create change in the world and they and in that environment in an education system like that young people would be sort of shaping their day a bit more because they'd be able to sort of choose what they were learning and sort mm -hmm. of think about how long it's going to take and when they're going to do it 
they'd obviously be supported by their teachers in that they wouldn't be completely left to their own devices which is you know pun intended um <laughs> they would they'd kind of having that sort of um agency to create their own little life world in their school mm -hmm. would help them to to develop that broader agentic world making and to help them to sort of form the habit and sort of start to identify i guess as somebody who can make change in the world and who you know that, that is who they are and what they will do in their world rather than being kind of passive and letting the mm -hmm. world be decided for them so in some some schools not all schools some schools um you know children have every minute of their day kind of decided for them by, yeah. by the school yeah. and they have no agency you know yeah. very very little agency even at playtime you know and exactly they but it, and so that makes that makes them passive independent whereas if you have if, if you give them some independence and some freedom they're going to develop that sort of um ex they're, they're going to experience what it's like to shape the world even if it's just their little world yeah. that they're living in right now which but they'll experience what that's like which will you know put them in good stead to go to go into their adult life as shapers of the world rather than kind of passive sort of adapters to the world as it mm -hmm. changes that's a bit and, and, wordy. I hope that's okay. <laughs> no, no, and and I think you're you're totally right because if if we're not giving young people that autonomy and that agency at a young age, what we're doing again is back to you know giving them a disservice because when they're adults, they're not used to having choice. Like it's it's like anything with children, isn't it? Like with food, you know, with anything. Yeah. If if you're deciding everything for them all the time, when there comes a time that they'll have to make a choice, they'll they'll probably make poor choices. Because they're not yeah. equipped so so on something so big as you know looking after our planet and making good choices for you know society in the future if if we don't give them that freedom and i even see it even on a basic level with my students and i absolutely love my students but mm. i can see for some of them where they have been so almost spoon-fed through some of our education systems that they get to higher education as an adult 18 plus um and they don't yeah. know how to be independent. So I think yeah. the same applies, doesn't it, if we're learning about our planet. If if we're not preparing them at a young age, it's it's not going to come naturally. That's it. And like can we because of the the crisis that we're heading into with, with the climate crisis, ecological breakdown and so on, and how that's gonna impact society and is already impacting society, like we can't go on with the same social cultural economic political systems that we've got right now they do need to change and they will change whether we like it or not really and what we don't want is a scenario where we move into a world where that change is dictated from a small number of very powerful figures at the top of society mm -hmm. because that's you know that's where the route to kind of dictatorships and so so on comes from and actually if you are able to young people are able to feel like they are agents of change and actually experience what it's like to create change in their schools, maybe in groups like this. One of the, you know, this is where we get to pedagogies and stuff is, you know, the, the most popular stuff we do is where we go into schools and we enable young people in groups to do projects on issues or to tackle issues in their school or in the world mm -hmm. that they think are important. Like we don't say we want you to do a project on climate or litter or water we say what is it that you really care about and actually enable them to through the process and they're kind of guided through this through the, by their teachers mm -hmm. they're they're sort of enabled to do a project and to create a change on the thing that they care about but it doesn't really matter what the issue is it's what they're learning is that they can make change and what it takes to do it and that it's fun it's enjoyable it's rewarding and it's and it's kind of and then and then they you know, it's that agentic world making and yeah. you know we call them generation action like that's what we're trying to nurture is generation action and that they 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 feel like it's possible for them to actually create change because because change needs to happen like the the future's mm -hmm. kind of the way the way things are headed we can't keep going with the, the existing systems and, and unless we have sort of generation coming through who are both able to create change um but also willing and sort of wanting to do it um mm -hmm it's going to be yeah the change is going to be done to them rather than by them and that's not what we need mm -hmm. but i've got i've got to say dr morgan it, it does sound um idyllic and dreamy <laughs> but i guess then i guess my last question are there actually in your opinion any signs to suggest that this 
beautiful vision for children being able to be change makers could actually become a reality or or do you think we're going to be stuck with our same clunky education system trying to churn out sats and gcses like Mm. is is there are there any glimmers of hope like in your and i mean you're in an interesting position because you've kind of got one foot in education one foot in you know sustainability like what's yeah. what's your opinion could could this ha- like please tell me for my children's sake i've got three children <laughs> could this happen like could this be a reality yeah i have a two-year-old and kind of makes me think about it a lot um i think there's yeah there's definitely hope for me in, in this because i think there's a couple of things i think on a really practical level in the uk we have a different education system in wales and scotland and all the line to what we have in england mm-hmm. and we are seeing I mean, I know the curriculum for Wales better because I'm, I'm, I live in Wales, and, and part of the reason we move back here is so, so my son can go into that education system. You know, it does; it is kind of prioritising independent learning and so on. So, like, Brilliant. there's hope, sort of, within the UK that, you know, if we get a change of government, there'll be a sure there'll be a whole scale curriculum review and review of the education system and assessment and so on. And mm-hmm. you would hope they'd look at what's happening elsewhere in the UK as a kind of first port of call and you know maybe leapfrog it so there's there's a potential there that they could we could move in that direction anyway but i think the bigger thing is actually what we're talking about really here this system of national local and personal curriculum what we're talking about is trust and actually trusting teachers trusting learners to kind of use the power that we'd be giving them wisely and not just to go off and sort of play computer games all day and or like teach really inappropriate things to, to young people we've got to trust that most people actually are good people and do care about the future and do care about young people and actually mm-hmm. what we've what this this kind of whether we are going to get a situation where the people in power now are going to be they're going to use their power to give power away to devolve power into this sort of decentralized model what's i think is giving me a lot of hope at the moment is that mainstream kind of organizations like the IPPR are really sort of starting to question the kind of fundamental I guess it's like perception of human nature which has been which has had a kind of stronghold over society probably since like the cold war period onwards really like it was then it was assumed that um, most people are kind of self-interested and they're driven by extrinsic rewards like pay and status and also extrinsic things like fear and the and those and that assumption that people were kind of self-interested led to a form of managing the public sector including teachers mm-hmm. which gate which tried to gain that self-interest so it was, it was sort of okay you just have to accept that people are selfish there's no such thing as a sense of public duty it's kind of people will talk the talk and say they're altruistic and kind but really they're not really they're self-interested and that kind of that kind of assumptions at the heart of kind of what led to what was called um new public management and it's and it's kind of it's been at the heart of the public sector for, for three or four decades now and what it's what's happened with it is that what's what we've found out from it is that while you can kind of extrinsically motivate people up to a point to do a good job mm-hmm. be tapping into their intrinsic motivation which is like their deep down sort of enjoyment of um being a teacher or their their desire to care for the world and care for the planet you're not you're not sort of tapping into that intrinsic motivation which means that teachers do a good enough job but they don't do it necessarily go that one step further and do a really great job i mean i'm generalizing some teachers do manage to bring their intrinsic motivation into education but for a lot Mm -hmm. of teachers it gets kind of pushed to the side and they're, they're so under the cosh and sort of being forced in, by various factors to to educate in a certain way and, to, and they're always living in fear of the next inspection and, and all mm-hmm. that they're not sort of given the freedom to sort of you know teach in the ways they want to teach and actually get their own kind of intrinsic reward from it which is beyond the extrinsic financial reward of it you know the actual sort of oh my goodness that was brilliant like mm-hmm. uplifted by the the growth i see in that student or i feel so uplifted by what we're doing as a school and how this is setting us on a path to to a green and thriving future and so on like that's that sort of intrinsic motivation has been squashed but what we're seeing is that as we kind of understand that that kind of new public management system of of, edge, of managing people in the public sector isn't get, 
isn't taking us to sort of like from good enough to great it's starting to be questioned and we're starting to think about actually we can we can shift and we do need to tap into these intrinsic motivations mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that itself comes from a broader conversation which is happening um people like rutger bregman john alexander this great organization called common cause we've done lots of research on this who are really showing that while we well, there's a kind of perception out there that most people are sort of self-interested and consumerist, individualistic, and that's just what we're like as human beings. That's just our nature. What they're showing is that that's really not true. Maybe 25% of the population, I think the research shows, maybe 25% of the population are really motivated by status and power and wealth and so on. Mm-hmm. But two people are, are motivated by cooperation, creativity, care for the planet, um, justice and so on. And those those are the things which really drive people. And yeah. And so we're seeing that and so if we can remove that kind of misperception that people are all selfish and actually shift to a perception where people are um compassionate and care about things bigger than self then we'll start to trust each other and say yeah it's okay to give people freedom because we can trust them not to sort of be selfish with the power that we're giving them we can trust them to be compassionate and altruistic with that with that power and that story is starting to evolve john alexander calls it a citizen shift and mm-hmm. we're, we're shifting from a from a story of ourselves being consumers to a story of ourselves being citizens and we're seeing more and more of it in the society and i think that's and i think more more and more policy is being built around it you think, you think look at things like hillary cotton's work on radical help and so on it's this is all about enabling young make, enabling groups of people to make decisions for themselves and trusting them in those decisions rather than having these kind of top-down one-size-fits-all models which are based on the assumption that we just can't trust people we, we, we have to kind of use a stick to, to kind of punish them or we have to use carrots of you know financial mm-hmm. incentives to, to make them change their behavior so yeah that's where the hope is for me that that that's sort of, that. um, in the 75 percent of us <laughs> Yeah, and there's actually including our listeners. Yeah, yeah, and we and we we did research on it with young people recently to show you know how compassionate they are, and actually mm-hmm. that they they when they're younger they actually have a more accurate view of each other. Like they do see each other as being kind and fair and cooperative. And as they get older into their teenagers, it kind of loses, kind of drifts away, and they actually start to feel that that others are self self interested. And if we can close that, oh wow, you know if we can address that misperception, which is what we try and do some some of our projects. Then, then automatically young people then go, oh, okay, I'm not the only one who cares about these issues. More people care about it than I thought. And that is a real motivator for them to then sort of step up and take action. And that's not, you know, not just in their school life, but in their adult life as well. Like we know that people who trust other people and think other people are good, fundamentally good, they're more likely to vote, they're more likely to volunteer, they're more likely to get involved in creating change locally. So it's, it's, yeah, there's huge. I, I've got a lot of kind of hope in that that we are that. shifting that direction. That we just need that story to um, to kick in a bit more. That's fantastic. So, so the final word then from you, Dr. Morgan, is that there is hope. <laughs> mm. We just need to be better communicators, continue working together, and I guess it comes back to I really like what you're saying there. Like remembering our why, I guess remembering why we get into education, remembering mm. you know what it is to be human, and kind of going back to those those natural roots, I guess, and and kind of trying to shed some of that consumerist drive and that drive for money and wealth and actually remember what's important in life and without our planet you know there won't be one (laughs) yeah that's it yeah Yeah. amazing so much food for thought we've got some lovely comments in the chat um thank you david who says lots to think about from this discussion um some other chats online saying thank you morgan for your viewpoints today so um just i just want to end by thanking you so much for your time on a friday morning morgan and coming and talking to us today Oh, thanks for the opportunity, Poppy. It's great to talk to you. And um, yeah, thanks everyone for tuning in and listening. No, it's been a real pleasure. And, you know, you've made talking about some very big, tricky subjects uh, enjoyable on a Friday morning. <laughs> so thank you so much. Um, if anyone's on Twitter, you can see um, Morgan tagged in some of our posts. So do give him a follow and get involved in some of those conversations. And Morgan, I hope you have an amazing weekend. Do try and stay warm. Thank you. Yeah, I will. <laughs> and you. Is, is that a, a part of our climate change, these colder winters here in England? Wow. I won't go into that. We'll be here all day. <laughs> yeah, actually, I just realised. It's a complicated let's, answer. <laughs> let's, let's not Depends ask. Depends where you question. live. <laughs> okay. Depends where you live. 
Well, come, come and find Dr. Morgan Phillips on socials to ask him that question. We'll definitely not open a can of worms as we finish the show today. But thank you so much, Morgan, and hopefully be in touch with you very soon and continue having these really purposeful conversations. Thanks, Bobby. Thank you. Take care. And to all our listeners, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Marie. I can see us listening in today. Sam, uh, David, and everyone else who's joining through the website. I wish you all a very merry weekend. Do stay warm. Do be careful on the pavements. They're super slippy. So wear sensible footwear, please. Um, and I will be back with you very soon with another very special guest. Take care, everybody. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.